as the crow flies on the Vans Crow Podcast. Natalina Sense, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So uh, you have a wonderful background. This is like Americana central of the country. Where are you located right now? Uh, I'm in my home office where I'm working most days. The Americana banner, I guess, is uh, my preparations for 4th of July. My grandma always did a big 4th of July, and I'm hoping to carry on her tradition. It's interesting because you look at something as simple as triangle flags that have stars and stripes on them, and it immediately makes me feel like it's summertime in your space. And I've been spending (laughs) a lot of time thinking about how people construct their backgrounds and something just as tiny as that little element in the background makes you be like, oh, it's summertime where Natalina's at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was watching your Twitter feed the other day. You are one of the most interesting journalists that's out there for me. I find you to be um, credible, interesting, and interested in the parts of agriculture that are probably the most important, but oftentimes the least flashy. So I, I saw you on Twitter and I was like, oh, I had to have Natalina on and hear what she thinks about what's going on in the wider world of agriculture right now. Well, thanks. I'm flattered. I, uh, I am interested in what I'm writing about and I think that's important and makes my job easy to show up to every day. So you work for Successful Farming Magazine, but before you got there, the way that I heard about you was I was out visiting a guy named Matt Sliger, who is a rice farmer out in California. He has a a YouTube channel called Rice Farming TV. It's incredibly clever. It's very funny. It's got a bunch of kids elements in it. He's just a cool guy. He's a friend Mm -hmm. of mine. And I went up there to visit him and he was like, hey man, you just missed Natalina. She was just through here like the day before you got here because you had gone on some kind of a tour around the country to meet farmers. What was that all about? Yeah, so uh, right after college, I took a little less traditional career path and uh, I lived out of my car, my lime green Ford Fiesta for a year. And uh, Matt was one of the great farmers that hosted me. He and his wife and his daughter were great hosts. They fed me, uh, they let me catch on up on laundry there and they shared their farm story with me. So um, it was a wonderful experience and Matt and his family are great people. You know, as I heard what, the way Matt described your visit, it reminded me of uh, like my experiences that had been mitigated through Peace Corps, right? So I went to Africa and traveled around and they kind of set up the scenario for you. And they're like, hey, your village is over there, go travel over there and get there. And people have this conception that if you go far away, those are the most interesting, exciting adventures. But when I heard about your adventure, just sleeping out of your car, being a woman that just finished college, what in the world prompted you to do this? Like, I, I, I hate to use the word twice, Americana kind of road trip traveling around to see farmers. Yeah, it, it was kind of a snowball of a lot of different experiences you know, and with plenty of windshield time uh, on the road trip to think about it, I had plenty of time to kind of answer that question. But uh, I think it starts with, I grew up with parents that um, encouraged me to think outside the box. You know, when I wanted to have a lemonade stand, I had a lemonade stand. When I wanted to be a part of a fundraiser for a building in the community that my dad was a part of, they let me contribute my ideas and, you know, pitch a, a carnival. I think I was in fifth grade. We like hosted a carnival to fundraise, you know, I don't even know how much it contributed to like the overall cause, but they believed in my crazy ideas and 
let a fifth grader believe they could have a carnival. So why can't a 20 year old travel across the country and visit all 50 states and interview farmers? Um, and then through college, I was really active in the Ag Entrepreneurship Initiative, um, which continued to kind of cultivate that um, way of thinking for me and um, thinking outside the box. I was uh, supported by lots of other people who successfully thought out the box and uh, been profitable or um, achieved their goals in their entrepreneurial pursuits. And they um, put me in touch with other people um, that thought outside the like, okay, you have to go get three internships and then your last one, you know, they should really love you and offer you a full-time job. And if you don't get a full-time offer from your last internship, you're a failure. Um, you know, like that was kind of like the mainstream path. And then there was um, this group of people that were like willing to think about that a little bit differently. And uh, I really kind of surrounded myself with that group of people. And so I felt really empowered by that group. And if I'm really honest with myself, I think it was also terrified to like sign on the dotted line for some corporate career, you know, all my friends were getting like company issued trucks and like, how are they going to start contributing to their 401k and decorate their cubicle? And I'm like, oh, that's just like kind of made me cringe. Like you just go there and then you're stuck for how long? And uh, like, what's the next step after that? What if you have a dream and, you know, do you just say goodbye to all of that if you um, you know, have a corporate job. And now I understand a little bit more, you know, there's some give and take to that, that like joining corporate America doesn't necessarily mean you like sign your soul away to do nothing, but like work on widgets all day. But, um, there's I definitely this... a cost. There's definitely yeah. a cost. And it's a yeah. cost that you don't understand when you're getting involved in college, you're going through right. school and you're having these experiences and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to get a job and I got to make money and I got to do this. And then when you do cross that chasm and you get into corporate America, you realize, hey, there are a lot of people that if they knew what this looked like when they got here, they might have made different choices before they funneled their way to this path. Right, right. And I think you learned some things in college that um, you may be living, willing to live with for a while. Um, like, you know, many of us learn to live like we're broke because we are in college and you know i knew i would be willing to live like that for another year or two but like if i was to go sign on the corporate dotted line for a contracted position and get a company car there's no way i'd want to go back and like eat my dinner out of a sack and live out of my car every night and i had a goal of getting to all 50 states by the time i was 25 and i knew none of that was going to happen unless i did something crazy so that was and my so crazy. What what were you, what were your thoughts like now looking back and knowing what skills you have to use to to be in your current role and where you're headed? Are you thinking like, hey, I should have just uh, you know headed for the hills and not gone to college and done this earlier, or oh, thank God I went to college and I learned the skills I needed that made it possible for me to be on this road trip? Um, I think I think college really prepared me maybe not in the way that like people go to college to be prepared for like to sit in class and like that I learned these great things in class I did have some wonderful professors and um I feel like I learned how to learn more about what interested me that I knew I liked asking the question why um my, my mom and dad talk about like when all of us kids were little 
we spent a lot of time in the car, you know, we're from rural America, you have to drive everywhere. And I would literally sit in the car with a notebook and like colored pens and pencils and take notes on questions that I would ask my mom, like, mom, why do fires start? Mom, why do people get arrested? Mom, why are people adopted? And I would just like take notes. And now I understand like I was curious about how the world works and, um, you know, some training in econ helped me understand how I can learn more. Um, so I think college was valuable in that sense. And then also seeing the wide spectrum of people who believe different things and understanding who believes things similar to you and who believes things very different from you and, and encouraging yourself to be surrounded by both so you can have a well-rounded perspective um, and, and kind of choose what direction you want your, head, your life to head from there. It feels like uh, whatever college was for me that doesn't feel that long ago. I mean, I guess it was like, you know, now it probably was a long time ago, I guess 20 years, but I would not want to go back to a college campus right now. And not just because I don't want to be like in that impoverished situation where I, you know, I, I basically avoided scurvy because there were tomatoes on Jimmy John's uh, <laughs> subs. Like I, I had no, I was very poor and ate very terribly but like I think college is something different now do you get that same sense would you be willing to go back do you think the college campus is approximately what it was when you were there you know I haven't been back to visit as much as I should um and especially right now with all that's going on with the global pandemic I mean my brother is living with me right now because classes were cut off at spring break um, most of his classes transition to online. And so he's living with me because I basically have a better net internet connection than mom and dad. And there's better like part-time side gig opportunities here in Des Moines than rural Iowa. So um, like given that, I, I don't know that the same like social interactions that I really benefited from or the extracurricular activities that were there that really um, challenged me to think differently and, and encouraged kind of my entrepreneurial pursuits um would be there in the same way so it'd be a little harder now so what is it like in des moines iowa because des moines for people that haven't been there that's a bustling city right but it is right <laughs> smack in the middle of the entire nation right there's just land on all directions what what is going what's the what's the society like right now in des moines iowa yeah so it's funny um how your perspective changes. I grew up in Southeast rural Iowa and coming to Des Moines was a regular thing because my mom has a lot of extended family here, but this was the big city. I mean, they had Walmart and Target and Farm and Fleet and, you know, like a mall, multiple malls. You could get confused when you're trying to meet someone because they were at a different mall than you were. <laughs> like, that was just so crazy to me as a kid. But now, you know, I've traveled to city's much larger than Des Moines and um, it doesn't seem so so crazy huge. I didn't really expect to end up here but I'm enjoying it um, and it's also interesting that people behave so much differently here than back home uh, especially in, in relationship to this pandemic or reaction to the pandemic. Um, I have a part-time job at Target so I see a lot of just like the public um, and I would say quite a few people were wearing masks. Um, a lot of people didn't want to be approached or greeted as you would normally be ex expected to be greeted, you know, at a retailer. Um, Are you expected to wear a mask at work? Yeah. Yep. Right now it's mandatory to, to wear a mask. 
um, I picked up some extra hours, like, as the cart wiper. So I, like, sanitize all the carts, uh, offer clean carts to people as they walk in the store, that sort of thing. So and, I think for people that don't know who you are, it's, it is shocking. And I want to find out more behind the second job because you are perhaps the most important digital contributor to an agriculture magazine in the United States right now. Like there is nobody that I know that has a wider uh, spectrum of various viewpoints that knows as many farmers as you. When I see stuff that comes out on, on uh, the website, like I'm like, oh, Natalina wrote that. So there's something motivating you deep inside to go on and finish your job and to, and to care for it so much and then go on to a, a part-time job at Target. <laughs> what, what's going on there? What, what makes you have that drive? Oh, I don't know. That's kind of a complicated question. I don't know if I'm just a little bit crazy, probably. But um, I guess like I've always, I, I remember like being so disappointed that I had to wait till I was 14 to like legally have a job. <laughs> Um, so I've just always enjoyed working. I've always enjoyed trying different jobs. I think if you could like sign up for a lifetime of just like having internships everywhere, kind of going back to like, I just always find myself asking the question why and wondering how things work. Um, I love working at Target because I love understanding, you know, many of the products in Target are agricultural products. And I feel like I'm seeing the other side or the continuation of the supply chain of things that I write about all day long. And then I go to Target and I have to explain to people like, no, we have one package of hot dogs left in the entire store. Like, sorry, there's no beef, there's no pork, there's no chicken. Um, and so it really helps me like kind of connect the dots. Um, I also Is that going on right now that you guys are out of meat on that level? Not, not right now, but a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I feel like in the that last would give weeks, you an inside view in the world because you'd be watching it from the commerce side as well. Like it, yeah. nobody ever sees both sides. Those are the ends of the chain. Yeah. Yeah. Then I'm like literally interviewing a farmer who's like trying to figure out what he's going to do with 10,000 hogs that don't have anywhere to go to market. And then I show up at six o'clock at Target and I have kind of the bouncer job that I never wanted telling people like, sorry, there's no meat here. And, you know, you're going to have to like, we're closing early, you know, please stay six feet away from people. You know, um, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's really, that situation is really sad, but it's really interesting to experience that whole spectrum all in like 12 hours. What has surprised you that you didn't think you would, you would see or observe? From working at Target? Yeah. Hmm. I think, and this probably goes back to the road trip, but just watching people engage with other people. Um, you know, I'm mindlessly folding t-shirts most of the time. So like I have a lot of time to think or just watch people engage with one another. And um, it's a lot of like repeated scenarios. You know, there's a lot of like mom with a cart full of kids or a lot of people in a hurry or not in a hurry. And um, it's kind of like a lot of people aren't super aware that, you know, you're there as a target worker. Like they just see you as a mindless machine, like folding t-shirts. They're not really, um, altering their interactions with one another because you're there. And so it's kind of like being a fly on the wall and 
it, it's really made me think twice about like, wow, if someone heard me talk to like my brother or sister or my mom, you know, it's like, we're trying to pick out a shirt for an event. Like, do I sound like that? Like, that's awful. Or like, wow, this girl's like 10 years old and so appreciative of like getting to pick out school clothes. Um, I could tell stories for like this whole podcast long of like things overheard in the fitting room. I don't know if that would. I mean, I think that that's what I, I, I'm finding myself relating with what you're saying and, and realizing that your path is, is, uh, really impressive because I find myself in every situation that I can socially, almost to the point of being a detriment where if I'm at a, a dinner, if I observe that there are people around me and I'm like, I wonder what they're doing. I wonder what they're talking about. I wonder how they're interacting. I wonder how they're treating their waiter. You know, like it's all of these thoughts and I, I love it. So, but to hear another soul be like, I, I figured out you can watch them while you're folding clothes. <laughs> seems amazing to me. Maybe it sound, makes me sound like a super creep, but also I, I never, you know, I've heard a lot of people say like, everybody should have a job in the service industry or retail industry, you know, and I'm a big believer in that, that like in my full-time job, I spend a lot of times in and out of hotels, you know, getting food from caterers or restaurants. And it's really easy to think like, I'm on deadline. I'm really important right now. I got to crank out this story. Like there are thousands of farmers waiting for this to hit their inbox to make business decisions and like hype yourself up. Like, this is, you know, the end of the world if this doesn't get done. And then you just kind of like treat the people around you like less than people. And I mean, it doesn't really upset me that people treat me that way at Target, but it just makes you stop and think. And um, it makes me really want to go above and beyond for someone who like acknowledges you or thanks you for your work. Like yesterday, there was the sweetest grandpa in um, looking for pinwheels. I work in apparel and clean carts sometimes. I have zero clue where pinwheels are, but I spent probably 20 minutes helping this grandpa find pinwheels that were going to make her his grandson's day because he was appreciative and patient. And, and Target would be so happy to find out you, you did it, right? That, that you made that person <laughs> have that good experience. I was squawking on the radio to like five different people who, you know, like the the people who belong in that area. So I don't know if the people that worked with me were really like, just tell the grandpa we don't have pinwheels, like we're out. But um, I don't know, those sort of interactions really make me, I feel like more mindful in the interactions I have with uh, the server that I encounter or the person at the airline counter or the checker yeah. at. It's, it's interesting, you were talking about like the feeling of being rushed and how that can make you feel important because it's like, hey, I my priority here that I have focused on number one supersedes all these other things. And you think about how repeated interactions where another human being is only seen as an impediment to completing a task, you really would feel isolated away from the rest of the world. Like there's some amount of your innate personality, you would do this anyway, but you also know, hey, if you don't treat me well, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow and I'm gonna write articles that are gonna be read by thousands and thousands of people all over the, all over the United States, all over the world. But it does make you stop and think about the people that their entire experience with other people is being an impediment. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I don't know, even in the news, you know, you hear of like different categories of, or different, uh, 
categories isn't the right word, but like industries and different types of workers, like restaurant industry workers were affected by the pandemic in a different way that than people like you and me who have the ability to work from a home office and can connect via technology like this. And, um, you know, it's one thing to just like read those headlines and then another to be like, oh yeah, that's like all the people that I used to bartend with. Like they don't know where dinner's coming from tonight. And not that I like have any aspirations of being a bartender for life or, you know. You were a bartender? Pizza. Yeah. I mean, you seem so sweet to be a bartender. I think of bartenders <laughs> as having to have this like hardened edge. Did it harden you up? Did it like, did you, did you see the rougher sides of life? And, and um, uh, I mean, yeah, there's, you see some really sad things, you know, like when you repeatedly are, are kicking the same guy out at close or like calling a cab for the same guy, uh, you know, Friday night after Friday night, you're like, you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't be coming to see me as your bartender like maybe there's somebody else you should be seeking this sort of interaction from and um it also i don't know i feel like this is maybe not the rabbit hole you, we were going down but um i feel like i'm i'm passionate about mental health and agriculture and i feel like that's something that um we're slowly breaking the stigma about you know it's okay to for farmers to talk about their struggling um, and I think by being a part of the food chain in a different way as a server and bartender, mental health is a huge problem in the service industry too. Um, you know, like your people who are, especially the back of house, like they don't get tips when it's a hundred degrees and they're rushing your pizza because their server screwed up. And I was like, oh yeah, uh, I had a pepperoni pizza that was supposed to be ready. And they're like, you didn't submit the ticket. I'm like, well, my table's been waiting for 20 minutes. Can you make that on the fly? Like, you know, the guys in the back of the house don't get anything besides like more pressure. Work. Yeah. yeah, more pressure for me. And, you know, then they're messing up somebody else's order. Um, so when, when you when you say you're passionate about mental health, what, what prompted this? This is, this is a subject that I think is, you're right. It's being, it's having attention called to it. But I often wonder it, how, how much dimension there is to the conversation that's going on about mental health. And so I'm, I'm always afraid to, to step into this because somebody's mental anguish is none of mine to judge. I have no interest right. in telling somebody whether they are or are not depressed or what they do or don't need to do. But when we start talking about mental health as a function that, that corporations should take on or industry groups... I start getting nervous. So, so help me understand, how did you get involved in this? Why is this an important issue to you? I think um, it starts from a place of having people in my family who've had their own struggles with mental health. And um, I think before I saw it in other people, I didn't understand that that's what was going on in my family or understand um, kind of what that meant for the relationships with my family. I just saw those people as like, oh, that's how they are or like this, this is how I engage with this person just because that's who they are. Not, not so much um, understanding like mental health is a piece of that. Um, and then I hit the road as uh, I think I was 21. I left on this road trip. I was like randomly calling, you know, farmers across the country. And then I'd like go sit in the cab with them for six hours and basically ask them to tell me their life story. And I set out 
thinking I'd get a lot of great, happy stories. And there, there are, um, but there's a lot of heartache and tension and family dynamics and pressures from all different angles um, on farmers. And, you know, I, I'll never forget asking, the first time I asked a farmer that was, I don't know if he was like eight or ninth generation farmer. And um, I said, like, what does it mean to you to be, you know, carrying on the tradition of so many people um, in your family, like expecting a really like positive, um, enthusiastic, excited answer. And he's like, I'm terrified in more colorful words. And I, it like really stopped me in my tracks and, and made me think and then there were, you know, lots of people that I talked to, you know, you talk to somebody for six hours and you get tired of talking about the weather and they don't want to hear any more of your crazy encounters from the road. Um, and they start opening up about like what they're really upset about and like what really is bothering them or, you know, they're farming with family members that they have like deep hurts with um you know that have been going on since they started farming which for some of these people is like five and six years old that they like have legitimate responsibilities on the farm and um it was it was overwhelming sometimes as like a young 20 very naive 20 something yeah person. you're hearing about people experience pain in their life that that you've just never you don't have the wisdom or the the enough of life experience to be like, oh, okay, this is how I would respond to that. You're, you're hearing yeah. somebody disclose things to you that's vastly beyond your experience. And that has to be an eye-opening experience. They, like, I didn't even know what to say to comfort them, let alone like, and now I'm realizing like, just listening to them was probably, maybe they opened up to me because they knew there was nothing I could offer them there. I didn't have any wisdom or advice or experience to to pass down to them that I was just there as an ear to listen and I was in the cab for six hours so I wasn't going anywhere and I think farmers work alone often and don't have that necessarily um to me there's like when when I'm hearing this I'm like yes I completely agree with this and and oftentimes the depression that at least that I have felt in my life when I've been depressed it's because there's some relationship where there's a problem and I don't know how to fix it or things are not looking good on the horizons financially if I keep doing the thing that I've been doing. So I've got to make some tough choices or I've got to go have a conversation with my wife or my family member that I don't want to have. And that depression is actually a signal. Hey, there's a dragon that you're supposed to face. And you know, you're like waiting around outside of the cave, just pacing back and forth. And so when I hear about these efforts to talk about mental illness in um, in agriculture or in any industry, I often wonder if, if we're providing the wrong level of em empathy, right? Like the, I understand that you're in pain. I, I do. I, I feel for anyone that's in pain. But I often think that most of the time, the person needs somebody to be like, all right, you got your sword and your shield. And that's the problem you're going after. Go get him because you got to tackle the problem in order to transcend the, the mental illness. In most cases, there are some people that have chemical imbalances that aren't the same. And so I often wonder if this push towards constant empathy or constant thinking about it def def 
phrase from getting people to to go conquer their dragons i i'm like definitely not a mental health expert i'm certainly learning i think there's some great resources and people to learn from so um i i don't feel like I'm an expert to be like giving advice on like how to help somebody with depression or anxiety. Um, but I think just realizing that like easily 50% of the hundred farm families, hundred plus farm families that I talked to in that year and spent one day with opened up to me about some level of depression or anxiety or like real struggle more than like oh my tractor won't start today and that's not something that i understood was happening until i was like literally in the cab with farmers and i feel like that's not something until more recently that i'm hearing people talk about and i think to um be able to like get your shield and your and your sword ready whatever that looks like for people um you have to know that like there's a dragon outside like some people aren't even we're just kind of like word vomiting to me and just realizing for themselves like oh like you've been asking about my you know relationship with my dad like what it means to be able to farm with my family like i guess i never really put it into words that like i felt this pressure for 28 42 years like my whole lifetime um that I think there's a lot of people that are still in like just the acknowledgement stage. That is something I can appreciate. Like that is, I, I, I'm, I'm a full believer that you don't know what you think until you say something out loud. It's why like running this podcast can be a little bit hard because if I actually want it to be something that's valuable, I have to be searching the edges for things that I don't know. But the problem is, when you are searching on those edges, sometimes you say things and you're like, I didn't know that I thought that. Or I thought that would sound better when I said it. But yeah. when I said it, I realized that's not actually what I think. And it's so amazing how many different voices that we have going on that when you finally put something to words, that can be just the half of the battle in and of itself. Yeah, I, I find myself in the same way. I'm definitely an external processor. And have to talk about things to kind of really like form my ideas and make them concrete. Um, I've, I've found that I think one of the reasons why ag Twitter took off in the way that it did as a tribe is because people were longing for the sort of community that comes with the agrarian lifestyle. So we yeah. mechanized the, the agrarian lifestyle and we took people that normally used to rub shoulders because you could only go so much land you had to have other people around you and we put them in tractors and we basically made them go out and be solitary and people talk about ag you know these are people that want to be solitary but that that's actually more complicated than that right there's something to sitting on people's porches for hours on end where things come up and since we've taken that away i think maybe that's why people would come up to a, a 21 year old eager-eyed person that's asking them questions and probably open up a lot to you. you're probably right you probably hit on the thing that's naturally there. Well, I mean, I think you're right that like farmers long, you know, they're just like everybody else. They long for this sense of community and understanding with other people. I mean, like, why do people hang out at the local coffee shop or like their local John Deere 
dealership. Like it's not because the popcorn tastes so good. Like there's somebody else there to talk to that understands what they're going through and can relate. Yeah, I I have a group of friends. There's a couple different groups of friends that they're, hey, keep going. Hey, what are you working on? Hey, I just got done with this run or I just got done with this exercise and what are you doing? that that like really invigorates you and i think all human beings need to be a part of groups and if you don't then you form together with weird amalgamations of groups and you probably end up at bars talking to bartenders right like because <laughs> because human beings need that that connection with other people yeah so um what do you uh what are you looking around at the world of agriculture and seeing is is worth paying attention to right now wow I think there's a lot of interesting ways that farmers are finding the way to tell their own story rather than, you know, like there's the traditional like columnist in your local paper or something like that. Um, or like the really gung ho, maybe um, minority of farmers who are serving on more public facing boards or um, organizations that, you know, have formed to say like, we are the voice of agriculture. We are representing farmers. Uh, but there's a lot of farmers that I'm seeing that aren't necessarily members of those groups. They aren't necessarily um, like advocating for a specific commodity or a specific tractor manufacturer. Um, but they've found their own voice, whether it be podcasting or blogs or vlogs or um, or like the corn events. star on YouTube. Have you seen that guy? Yeah. Yeah, I have. There, there's a number of YouTubers. Um, and I think it's really cool to see people kind of breaking outside the box and figuring out like what fits best with my interests. Like, yes, I love growing corn or yes, I love working on machinery, but like vlogging is kind of cool. Or like I can get into camera angles and lighting and how audio works and like where I can stick this camera and get like the weirdest view of like, uh, the planter working or how high I can fly my drone and see like all my family working together in in their these huge pieces of machinery in the same field and uh I think it's fun to see farmers kind of branch out in creative ways that people don't think of as like traditional agriculture side gigs you know for a long time people have like sold seed on the side or maybe had a custom spraying business or something as um, a way to supplement their farm income from like the crops that they're growing. But now people are being creative in, I don't wanna say that like vlogging is more artistic than, than growing corn or something. Cause I, I, I really think there's like an art to um, nurturing life of, of crops or livestock, um, but in, in a way that is a little different than a lot of people have done in the past. So speaking of art of growing crops, are you familiar with Jason Mock? Yeah, I listen to your podcast with him. So he is holding this uh, um, field days in Muncie, Indiana on Friday. And it's like, it is art. The event he's putting yeah. together, like he's got a golf thing that it goes through his different fields and his different farms. He's showing how He's running um, soybeans in between, or I'm sorry, wheat in between his soybean rows. And so I'm, are you going out to that this weekend? I'm not, I'm not. I it think sounds it's like a great event. It's, it's so neat. And I think that it's like one of these weird points in history 
where this art of that that he is creating with his farming has collided with people realizing like hey even farming is going to go through a cultural change because of coronavirus and changes to society so it, to me it seems like what an exciting moment to happen th this friday i'm i'm really looking forward to it that's so cool and i love that like i mean we talk in agriculture all the time like all the different facts hats farmers wear, whether it's marketing or, um, you know, mechanic or machine operator or agronomist. But then like you see farmers throwing in these awesome hats like event planner and like, you know, uh, landscape architect, like with how they're laying out their field days or uh, I don't know if that's the right term for it. But, you know, like all these things that are just so like I think of event planner and I think of like somebody who figures out weddings for people that have enough money to hire a planner for their wedding. Like, and you know, you probably don't expect an event planner and like a plaid shirt and a John Deere cap, but. Well, I mean, speaking of that, <laughs> the thing that's been surprising is I, you know, have you used a VR headset yet? Like a I have. And yeah. So what has been your experience with that? Um, well, it was like, how long ago did you do it? It's probably three or four months ago. Oh, so recently. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a friend's little brother who's like super into VR. Um, and basically he like put me on top of a Minecraft tower, pushed me off and like tried to get me to like scream or fall like his mom did. But I'm also like stubborn enough that I was like, this isn't going to get me. So I don't know if I gave it a fair shot. But, um, and then we played like some like band game in VR. So, so there, when I first that. got it, I, I, it took me a long time where I was like, all right, this is a little bit like that hokey second life game where you used to be able to have these avatars and you could have meetings and it didn't make any sense. And I've talked to people on the podcast about how one of the cool things about virtual reality is if you meet in a room with another person, when you get your avatar close up to them, you can hear them really clearly. But if you separate away, they, you can hear them less and less. And if you put this person above this person, like on a stage, their sound is louder than the person that's below them. So you can add in that sound proximity that you can't do on a Zoom call. You know, everybody's equal on that. Mm -hmm. But I've started playing this Oculus uh, Tetris game that I think is one of the most profound experiences I've ever had. And uh, I... I I want to describe it to somebody like you and I want you to go out and do it to see if my description matches it. But have you heard of this game, this, uh, this uh, uh. Tetris effect? So you play this game. So it's Tetris and the screen comes down in front of you and it's just like the blocks falling. And at first you're like, oh, there's just a giant Tetris board in front of me because it's the screen. But as you get lines, you start noticing that the music that is playing is going along with the lines. And then as it goes along a little further, you realize every time I spin the little square piece or the straight piece or whatever, it actually creates a, a note. And that note is correlated with the melody that's playing. And so no matter what I do, no matter how many times I spin, I spin that piece, it makes it sound like there's music playing and I'm conducting it. Then as you land more and more pieces and they start falling, all of the background around the Tetris starts glowing different things like the other day i there were these people that look like they're um tongues of flames and they're around you in a circle and as you get as you land a piece they go home 
and they and they all move forward like this so then as you do it more they start going faster boom boom and then as the pieces come faster 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 all of a sudden everything you do they are cheering and going nuts and there's drums and fire sparking everywhere and so you it's like you are the head of an aztec tribe in the middle of the craziest frenzy you've ever heard and then you go on to the next tetris board and so wow. like i'm telling you there is nothing on earth like this and everybody should be like i don't it's maybe not for me maybe i don't need to play these games now but it is coming that sounds like a really intense experience i i played tetris the other night like on my phone as i was like to fall asleep but i don't think i could fall asleep to that version of tetris well you know how like when you play tetris uh right before you go to bed you dream about the pieces do you have that i don't know so i'm like a tetris junkie this is like this is like the perfect thing for me because all the pieces can fit together and it's just like so for me i just love it you know lines 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 i love it but the the so I dream about it if I play Tetris at night. But now to dream about Tetris effect where there's whales swimming at you as you're trying to lay these pieces down, I'm telling you, it's it's you as the digital media person for the probably most important ag magazine in the country, you need one. I'll uh I'll pitch that at our next uh, editorial planning meeting. <laughs> So what else are you paying attention to? Is, are you going to stay at your target job for a while? Or are you going to move around to a different like part-time job to try something new? What do you think? I don't know. Um, I've kind of, Target's been really great about being flexible with my full-time job, um, traveling. I mean, there's not a lot of that right now. And um, they did just bump up the, the national starting, starting uh, pay rate. So everybody's at $15 an hour. And all of Target. Love it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So we we got like a two dollar bump up for like hazard pay during coronavirus, um, and then then we're all at fifteen dollars an hour. So um, you know that just started kicking in. I was starting to kind of think like, uh, what what else do I want to try? Last year, last year this time of year, I had three jobs, and so it started the farmers market, which was a really cool experience. Like you just get to wake up with the city. I had to be downtown Des Moines at 5 a.m. And you know, there's all these trucks, like people moving these massive bins of like cantaloupe and cucumber and sweet corn and these delicious like homemade things. Um, I was just working for a coffee shop. So our, our setup was pretty simple, but we're like setting up in the street when it's totally dark. And then like the city just like starts waking up and coming alive. Uh, people are out on a Saturday morning because it's beautiful out. You know, they've got their kids and their stroller and their dog. Like everybody wants to be there. You know, like people go to Target because they need something. Like they have to be there. People go to the farmer mar- farmer's market to like enjoy their Saturday, soak in the like. That's music. a good point. Yeah. Not too many people are in a big rush. Um, it's okay if their coffee takes two more minutes or if like, you know, you accidentally gave them almond milk, like maybe they'll try something new. They're going to buy flowers anyways, you know, like, like people show up to the farmer's market because they're expecting a good experience. Um, they're there to like soak it in and enjoy the experience. Um, and it was like a really positive way to start every Saturday other than like my alarm going off at four in the morning. (laughs) Um, so that was really cool. And then 
um, I'm responsible for sending the newsletter on Saturday. So sometimes I did a little bit of work for um, successful farming on Saturday and it was like, oh, back to the world. Like forget about, you know, um, like loaded hot dogs and lemonade and live music. <laughs> like, you know, soybeans just dropped 15 cents and you get to go tell you know, <laughs> bunch, thousands of farmers like the bad news. Um, and then I would go to Target and like, that's, I was working longer shifts then. And it was, it's really interesting to like see people in the morning who are like happy to be there, there just to relax. And then like people at Target, like I have a three-year-old's birthday party in 20 minutes and I need ice and Kool-Aid and like the party noisemakers. Like I need all of those right now. It's like, I'm coming up, they come up to me and I'm like folding my t-shirt. I'm like, well, that's that way. That's that way. Like, um, you know, you know, a whole different there. mentality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally it's just different like culture. A totally different experience. And, um, I, I'm realizing as I'm talking to you, like, I guess I love having like complete opposite experiences, like all in a short period of time, whether that's like, you know, working uh, my full-time job at successful farming and then I like go bartend and I'm like pairing wine with a pork dinner or um, you know it's like telling people at Target like hey there is no pork or the farmer's market where you're like seeing people who clearly fed their pigs this morning. So um, you have this very interesting view and I think one of the paradigms that we're not seeing very many people talk about the current conflict in the United States is, in a lot of ways, it is rural and urban, not understanding one another, right? Like you look at the way that the rural world, and I'm talking about people living in towns of 10,000 people or less, which is a third of the population, people forget that 33% of the population lives in towns 10,000 or less. And the people living in the cities, they almost come from different countries, like, the, the, the way that they view how things should be, how they ought to be, where they're going, what is good, they're different. What's your view on this since you see both sides of the spectrum? I feel like I, I kind of understand both sides too. I mean, the, the road trip um, that I went on right after college, I would say I legitimately experienced culture shock in my own country regularly. And that was you know, if I had to write a list of expectations for my trip before I left, that's not something I would have even crossed my mind to, to have experienced. You wouldn't even think to write it down, right? You wouldn't yeah, even yeah. think like, oh, this is going to be something that would happen, right? <laughs> I, I, I always tell the story. I remember showing up um, on a farm, I believe it was in North Carolina. And this man that I, you know, only knew from the internet um, was like, I'm fixing to carry you over there. But something, 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 fixing to carry. I'm like, what's broken? And like, my legs work fine. I can walk there. <laughs> but like, that really, like, I just had to use context and just, I, I don't think I even said anything. I just- Did you let him carry you across the river? <laughs> no, nothing was broken. We just walked around his farm. Um, but uh, yeah, he, and, and we got in the truck and like drove around but like, that's what fixing a carry meant. But I didn't know when I showed I didn't know what that meant. Yeah, I was yeah. imagining you being picked up and carried across the stream or something. Yeah, yeah. Like um, a lot of times in the South, they'll say like, oh, uh, I'll carry over to Walmart. 
rather than like come along with me or ride with me it's like I'll carry you to Walmart or I carried you to school today so um that that sort of thing um but you were asking about the urban rural divide and I feel like that's something I we talked a lot about in college and I feel like it's painted more black and white than maybe it is I mean I even think of myself as like would I fit in the rural camp or the urban camp like I grew up in a community of about 2,000 people my parents didn't farm but my neighbors were like corn sheep cattle and a cemetery so like as closest to growing up on a farm uh as you can in town um many of the people I interacted were with were were farmers uh or like the more traditional picture of a of an egg producer um I you know, we had crappy internet and all the, the great things that people associate with rural America. Now I live in Des Moines, the biggest, like you said, the biggest city in, in Iowa. Um, but I feel like, I don't know, I guess I'm, a, I'm just processing out loud here. But There's a fascinating book uh, called Coming Apart by a guy named Charles Murray, who's out of the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute. And the first two chapters of that book, Coming Apart, just ripped my mind in shreds. Are, are you familiar with this book? Do you know what this is about? So no, he's talking about how much uh, the GI Bill, in effect, changed the demographics of the United States, such that you started having people clustering in cities and then marrying only people that also went to college. So you started having college people marrying college people. And then you started separating those people just by fact of, if you have a hedge fund manager and a doctor that are now highly educated and can make a lot of money, they continue to concentrate their wealth and their social structures and everything. They just keep moving into a more centralized location. But most people don't realize that a third of the U.S. population is living in towns of 10,000 people or less. But even more than that, most of the people in the upper 50% have never been on a factory floor. They've never actually been to a farm. They've never petted a farm animal. Like they, the experience that we have is mitigated through probably the English language and mainstream television of which mainstream television is going off. So like our cultural influences that bind us together seem to be uh, fracturing out quite a bit. Yeah, I would agree with that in some ways. Maybe I'm just like a weird, creepy people person. <laughs> I'm realizing this as I'm like talking out loud. But um, after I got done with the road trip, I liked to, it, it seems like impersonal to call it a game, but I like to kind of play this game with like anybody that I was interacting with, like whether it be like the bartender, my cashier at Walmart, um, my Uber driver, Uber drivers were my favorite, um, or like people, the person at the desk when you're like checking into your hotel, people that you normally are like, I'm here for this, like your role is to serve me. Yeah, you're interrupting me getting things done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or like, you know, their job is to get you on your way. Um, but I love trying to see how much I can get that person to tell them about me. And like, you would be so, I would, I was always surprised. Like there could be an, an Uber driver in DC and in a five block drive, we could always find something we had in common. Um, and I think I don't know, maybe it's just a weird game, but no, I, it was I'm a totally really weird. powerful experience um, that you, 
you know, you jump in this car with somebody who looks totally different than you, speaks different than you, uh, is a totally different age than you, obviously lives in a bustling city, and I'm like, you know, it's a lot for me to cross four lanes, and I can't even see across this, uh, this road, um, and you're like, I don't have anything in common with this person, but you start talking to them, and uh, asking questions, and sincerely listening for their, their answers, rather than, like, something to respond to, or, like, uh, like one up. I feel like so many people, when they're listening, it was a really powerful, I'm going off on a rabbit trail here, but it was a really powerful experience to do like a hundred farm interviews and then I had to hand transcribe them all on this road trip that I went on. And so I got to spend a lot of time with myself and a lot of it was really cringeworthy. And I was like, wow, like, am I really listening to this guy's life story that I just like drove across the country to ask him for? Or am I like, in the moment, I was like, oh, yeah, man, I'm on the same page. Like, I experienced something like that. I can relate. But really, I was just sitting there and one-upping everything he was telling me. Oh, and, that's a, that is so hard to watch or listen <laughs> right? to. Oh, my God. You just want to put your head down on the table and be like, what do you think he was thinking when I said that? <laughs> yeah, like... Who is this know-it-all 20-something? I doubt that. I doubt that happened. But jelly bean car, like, to tell me that she's bottle-fed lambs, too, and she used to bail hay, and, you know, she likes green tractors. And they're like, what does she need to talk to me for? You know, and I, I, I feel like when you have the opportunity to spend that much time with yourself and hear how you interact with people, I, I think that coupled with my like fly on the wall experience at like Target or all these like weird side jobs I have. Um, I don't know. I, I think there's something about the recording in the candid moments that makes you like be like, Ooh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> like my wife has come down here and I've been busy working on something and she'll have brought me dinner. And uh, you know, the engagement will go fine, but she'll leave and I'll play it back and I'll be like, I, I really didn't even look up there. I didn't like, I didn't give her the normal acknowledgements that if she wasn't giving me, I'd be really hurt. But we don't have very many experiences where you observe it. But when you do, you're like, I don't know that I would like that guy if I knew him. <laughs> right, right. Okay, this is really weird. But after like, for, I mean, a year of my life was basically recorded on this road trip. Like anytime I was with someone, my recorder was rolling. Do you ever, now if you're like, I, I really was embarrassed at myself when I was like, oh, let me play back with the recording because I didn't hear what they said. And like normal engagement, like I'm at Target. I'm like, oh, I didn't hear what that person asked me. Like, let me listen back on the recording. I'm like, I don't have a recording. Like I need to be a better listener that in some ways, like recording everything. Um, I just like, didn't ask questions that I was like, oh, I'll catch that. Like, I'll, I'll understand when I slow it down on the recording or that sort of thing. Do you ever catch yourself? Well, I think uh, like my, so doing this podcast has been really good for me because I realized that at least for me and this conversation, conversation is more like grappling or jujitsu than it is like dancing. Because in dancing, you and I both know what steps we're supposed to take. You have your role. I have my role. We play them right. doesn't matter. We can interchange the person. And maybe the dance, like, 
you know, the way it looks or the way that somebody patterns their body changes. But in grappling, it is all call and response. You know, this person's going to grab you here. How are you going to respond to that? And it doesn't mean that you're trying to fight the other person to the ground. But in order to have a conversation that people want to watch, it has to be unexpected. And I find myself when I'm not doing the podcast, if I'm talking to other people, focusing on them with the level of intensity that I have right now and making them be like, whoa, what is going <laughs> on here? Like, why, why is he just pounding me with questions? And I have to realize like, hey, Vance, hey, hey, you're not recording this. You got to go in the other direction. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting that, I don't know, before I was in the communication field at all, I was like, whoa, these people are experts. Like they know everything about communication. And really, I think I just like look at myself more and like cringe more at what I do. And like, I know a lot of stuff not to do. I don't know that I'm an expert in like what to do, but. I'm what like, did you study in college? Um, ag business. So <laughs> I, I'm not really qualified to be a journalist either. But I, I think it was a good stretch. So I, I, my college experience, I'm ambivalent about because the social part of it, how, who I became as a person, transformative, absolutely monumental. The people I met, I still have relationships with them. It was really good for me. I learned. And some of the, the, the liberal arts aspect of it were deeply helpful to me. I learned philosophy, I learned logic, I learned kind of general classics of, of uh, history. But like when I think of my communications classes, I don't think there's anything that I use now. I think I'm more likely to use the pre-calculus that I learned in high school than I am to learn <laughs> about the Venn diagrams I did about communications in college. And so I find myself being a little bit uh, torn when people are like, hey, will you talk to our communications person? You know, they're, they're two years into school and they want to know what else they should study. And I'm usually like, maybe something that's not communications. <laughs> yeah, I literally took like English 101 or like whatever's required for my major, but like never set foot in a journalism class. So uh, I don't know. I, I feel like that both helps me sometimes in my role and doesn't help me. Um, I feel like catching on to the editorial process like that's used in our business and the back and forth between the editor and like whose role is what and um you know when this needs copy edited and blah 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 is something that took me longer i'm still not great with um to catch on to than like my peers who like worked for the school newspaper and like that's something that's ingrained in them now um but on the other hand i feel like because nobody told me how to do an interview, I just did it a hundred times with farmers and like listened to myself really screw up um, or really embarrassed myself. I learned what worked for me. And like what worked for me is I'm a millennial so I can type a lot faster on my phone and I take pictures and like, it's gonna hold me accountable to write a story if I throw it up on Twitter and people are like, oh, you're like live tweeting this boring USDA meeting. Like somehow it's interesting and I'm, I'm getting the highlights without the like droning on and on and coffee breath. Like, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the ways that you made a name for yourself. That's right. Because there are so many people that in the past were going to live events 
And what they were doing was taking photos saying, I am at this live event. Look at me. I'm at this live event. And no one cares about that, right? <laughs> like maybe you do for one tweet, but like the rest of them, what you really want to know is, are the people that were up on the stage saying things that I should have heard? Is there a way for me to get that information now? Is there a way for me to understand what is occurring and slamming together there? And that's what I, I really do admire that about the way that you are at these different events, because you never get the sense that it's like, oh, Natalie's doing her noon tweet. Now it's her one fifteen tweet. Like, it's never like that. I don't think I even understood what I was doing when I started doing it. And I, so a lot of um, my peers at like competitive magazines, um, like, are like my parents' age or older. And... Um, like have their flip book and they're really great at asking questions and like writing notes in that skinny little notebook that like you see in the movies. And if I tried to do that, A, I wouldn't be able to read my handwriting and B, it would just be a disaster. Like my notebook would fall in mud. I don't know. It would just be bad. Um, but I know, I remember like I'd show up, you know, you show up to cover a new piece of machinery at Farm Progress show or some big event and you're there with all your competitors, you kind of like line up and swarm the, the important person that's talking. And I have like this exact set of headphones, like one is on, one is off. And I've got like my audio recorder, I've got two phones. So like, usually I'm like on my, one phone's on my knee like this and I'm tweeting with the other one. Like sometimes I'll like snap a quick photo of you or like what's behind you. I look like the most disengaged millennial, like everything that people complain about you know, millennials. <laughs> and then like, I, I remember the first time the person I was speaking to or that was speaking to us, like his Apple watch started dinging because I was tagging him on Twitter. And like, it was, it was distracting in that moment. But then people realized like, oh, she's not just like chatting with her boyfriend or like FaceTiming her mom. She's like, she's <laughs> the story's out there. It's like somebody already posted a photo. Like, uh, like, this is going to go to print for them three weeks from now. And I'm like, I mean, I was just doing my job, but like my story was up like that. So it was just something I stumbled across. It's not something that was uh, great. So if you're telling stories um, and you're such a positive, optimistic, like enthusiastic person, certainly you've written a story that somebody thinks, no, you got that really wrong. How are you at handling uh feedback or criticism um i think that story is happening right now it's scattered all over my dining room table in like note cards and and i think that's why i'm partly having a challenge in writing it is um it's a story about farmers complicated relationship with the usda and there's lots of opinions there a wide range of spectrum i mean even farmers engagement with the USDA, there's 19 USDA agencies. So like not every farmer has engaged with USDA in the same way anyway. And there's like county Have you ever been to the, the USDA countries. building in DC? Yeah, so two Septembers ago, I was really fortunate and got to spend a whole day with Sonny Purdue, like just shadowing him, just like hanging out, watching what he does, talking to him about his grandkids, watching him inter interact with his staff, um, you know, like Zippy Duval dropped in on him, a couple other people from Georgia from his time as governor 
um, and just kind of see him in his element. It was really interesting. So in some ways, this story is a follow up on that. Um, but I'm I'm sure I'm going to get some letters. Yeah, I mean, like it is a polarizing organization. I remember when I lived in D.C. and I was like, "That's the USDA." It, I mean, it's as big as the Pentagon. It's it's enormous, and like you think of the USDA as like the little extension office that you see in your county in your county small town. You don't realize like this is as big as the IRS. I don't. It's huge. <laughs> it's it's been really interesting i think i've talked to 14 farmers for this story um and some of them like they're like picture sunny purdue as usda and some people picture carol the lady behind the counter in their local fsa office who's like always there to help them straighten out their paperwork and get them applied for the programs that they qualify for but even just like what comes to mind for farmers when you say usda um are totally different things which is what part of, part of what will make this story interesting, but also really difficult to write. And so when does that publish? Um, that'll be in the August issue. And uh, since I'm a terrible writer for print, there will also be components online. There, are, I'm so thankful we just adopted this like QR code that you can put in the magazine, which is basically for editors like me who are like terrible at scrunching things down to four pages. Um, and I also like to include like, I want to see pictures of the people that I'm talking about and I want to see, you know, the environments that they're working in and that sort of thing. And so having that, those components of the story online is much more doable than, than on a four page insert in the magazine. So it'll, it'll be up in August. And if people wanted to follow along with you on Twitter, so when you finally start getting back to these conferences and they wanted to, <laughs> to watch what you're doing, how would they find you? Um, my Twitter handle is roots underscore journey on, on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Instagram. I'm not very good about posting on Instagram. I um, deleted my Instagram. I realized really? like, yeah. Cause I looked at that little, uh, magnifying glass that says like, Hey, what are you searching for? And it shows you, essentially it shows you what you've been looking at. And, mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 like, I didn't really like what it, what it showed me, right. Where I was like, this cannot be a good use of time. Like how many chokeholds can a person do to another person? And how often do I need to see this in a day? Probably not as many as <laughs> so I, I dumped it and I'm just Twitter and then the Articulate Ventures Network. Nice. Nice. Um, I still have all my social media. I have a blog that I haven't touched in like since the road trip. I probably need to determine the fate of that, but uh, yeah, most of my most of my work is on agriculture.com. You can find my byline there, and everything from mental health to like summer safety tips to uh, I wrote about the CFAP program a lot. Um, new machine. What's that? Uh, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Oh, so it's. Um, three billion i believe in in like product that usda was going to buy and distribute to like food pantries and and nonprofits, and then 16 billion dollars in direct payments to farmers and how did that go uh so applications are open now um i spoke with a livestock farmer a green farmer and a dairy producer all all three of those groups have like a different payment structure um who all applied like within the first week of of applications opening and um i followed up with two of them um the the application process they said 
was was pretty easy. They were able to do it online. A couple of them made quick phone calls to their local office. Um, and they all praised their local FSA people for like, those people had to digest a lot of information really quickly and then had farmers that were like, hey, how do I get this money? Um, so I, I heard good things there um, about how the local FSA office handled it. Um, and two of the three that I followed up with have received their checks. Um, farmers will receive 80% of their total maximum payment right now. And then after applications close in August, um, it's expected if funds are still available, they'll get the remaining 20%. So one farmer did go ahead and get her 80% check. Then the other farmer um, looked at the math and was like, oh, this check's actually only 50% of what I was expecting. So she followed up with her FSA office and it was just a an error and they're in the process of getting that corrected. So all things considered for how quickly it was put together and how how wide of a scope. Um, I've heard pretty good things in the countryside about it. I'll be very interested to see. My guess is that as we head closer to the election, there's going to be more money given out. And my sense is that the student loan crisis is going to be brought to the forefront. And for the first time in my life, I've started saying like, well, if we're going to give billions of dollars to airline companies and business owners and farmers, it's pretty hard to look at the debt that somebody else had and say, no, you're going to have to hang on to that. So I think that that could become a very contentious issue. And I think that it's good for rural America to be thinking about it and come to some conclusions about how is it that we can run a population where there's $1.5 trillion of non-dischargeable debt out there? Like, that is to me the it makes it ripe for a populist uprising because it just takes one person saying come with me and i'll free you from your debts all you got to do is x and so i i want as a country for us to figure out how can we lower debt in this country because that is really going to cause problems and and you're talking to a person well i'm talking to a person that works three jobs like you know <laughs> that's working all the time so it's it's, it's very difficult to imagine that we should be doing this as a moral quandary, but I'm also very afraid of a nation that's indebted. Yeah, I was listening to, I'm not sure if it was your most recent podcast, but the last one that I listened to touched on, on student debt and uh, really got me thinking about it. I mean, and I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I work three jobs more for like the because I'm a nerd, like so what, what I can learn. And uh, I guess that's what I do for fun is I just work a different job. But, um, and, and I'm, you know, trying to be responsible for, so one day I can uh, maybe not work three jobs and enjoy time with a family or something like that. Um, but I work alongside, you know, a lot of college kids at Target who are like, I lost my employment with the school when when spring break ended and like that's how I pay my mortgage or well they don't have a mortgage but like rent the rent or and like, everything yeah their yeah. food like my car insurance and are like literally like I I'm airing up my tire to get to Target it's it's flat but like I need to air it up because I I can't afford to buy a new one until like Friday you know that I I'm really thankful to like beyond be uh, not in that position anymore that 
you know, now I work three jobs and, and don't have to live crisis by crisis, like financially. But um, I, I never want to like forget what that feels like or think of people who, who are in that position. Um, I, I want to be like sensitive to that, I guess. It's like, yeah, I, I agree with that. Like I, I worked a lot of, I worked paving to pay for school. I worked, I did all kinds of extra jobs. I found, I took risks and I, and I got help to pay off my debts. And uh, I, I, I just know that the pressure that people feel like the, the cold wall or ceiling that presses down on them when they have debt is one that you shouldn't forget because it makes them vulnerable to somebody that can come along and, uh, and, and take their problems that are real and give them a solution that's fast. And you can, you can resent the person for that, or you can try and find a way to solve their problem in a way that that is that transcends the current state but i i get the very strong sense that we're in a dangerous time right now particularly with regards to debt you know you talk about we talked earlier about mental health and farmers losing the farm and the pressure of keeping that legacy same thing right so we've got to figure out how to solve these problems um because otherwise you have populations that are vulnerable to to getting behind people that we wouldn't want them to get behind yeah yeah and i think being working with people that like, I mean, we, and I don't want to downplay how devastating it would be to lose part of the farm or something like that. But um, in agriculture, we have so many assets that like, it, it's really heartbreaking, but there we have 40 acres that, you know, you're like, grandpa's going to turn over in his grave. And, you know, my wife's going to divorce me for selling this 40 acres, but like to put food on the table, that's what needs to happen. Like, a I don't want to say a lot, but some people have that option that there's like a liquidity there that, you know, there's a lot of people that like this, this target paycheck is like, it's rent a good, or the it's street. the best option. That's like, right. That's right. They don't, they don't have a home to sell. They don't, their, their car is, you know, not something that's going to get them ahead to sell um, that they're in, in such a, a different position um and, and that's not to minimize anybody's position but um even even what trouble with debt looks like for different people um just the just the amount of brain space it takes up when you're in debt i mean i remember being worried whether or not i was going to be able to pay my bills or if i should get my brakes replaced or if i should try and replace it myself and side note i should not have been replacing my <laughs> brakes myself I, I, uh, I, I think that right now, you don't have to go out on social media and uh, pound on the desk about how empathetic you are. But it will never hurt you to try and understand and relate your experiences to the pain of other people so that that way you can come away from a different thing. Well, Natalina, this has been a wild ride. I'm so glad you posted that Twitter of the sunset after your target job. That was the one that it prompted me to be like, whoa, she's out there working and hustling. I'm going to give her a call and see what motivates her. So this has been a great conversation. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun to chat. Thank you to Natalina Sense for joining me for the call. You can find her on Twitter at roots underscore journey. 
So the Articulate Ventures Network is growing and growing. We just had the first round of invitations go out about being in that next wave of participants. It's fun and exciting time. People are starting to put up videos saying, hey, give me some feedback about the speech I'm going to give. I want to know how I can make it better. There are other people going through the classes and giving us feedback on how to make those better. And we're having lots and lots of interesting interactions between people that are living in totally different parts of the country talking about how should I think about this and what are you guys doing to solve this problem. It's a neat group. If you're interested, go to the show notes below and I will have a link that you can click on to sign up to be invited to the next wave. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm glad you're here. <laughs>